Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, August 25, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are starting at the beginning of Chapter 10, Two Employers, on page 136. Today's readers are as follows. Reading the 12 Steps will be Janice M. Reading the 12 Traditions will be Susan M. And reading the text will be Esther C., Susie K., and Devora S. The share ID for Sunday, August 24th, is 6787. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Carolyn S., no, Janice M., to read the OA 12 steps. Well, <clears throat> pardon me. Good morning, Rebecca. Uh, this is Janice M., I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. These are the 12 steps of OA. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Janice M. 
I will now ask Susan M. to read the OA 12 Traditions. Susan M., Recovered Name, 12 Traditions. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, accepting matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse finance or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Uh, Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I pass. Thank you, Susan M. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. While we typically read a paragraph or two at a time from the literature for chapters 8, 9, and 10, we are picking up the pace and reading a page or so at a time. Then we stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book at the beginning of Chapter 10, The Family Afterward, on page 136, with the first paragraph, which begins, Among Many Employers. I will now ask Esther C. to get us started by reading six paragraphs ending in Better Understanding All Around on page 137. Good morning. My name is Esther C. from Canada, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Chapter 10, Two Employers. Among many employers nowadays, we think of one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. 
He has hired and fired hundreds of men. He knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere. But let him tell you. I was at one time assistant manager of a corporation department employing 6,600 men. One day my secretary came in saying that Mr. B insisted on speaking with me. I told her to say that I was not interested. I had warned him several times that he had but one more chance. Not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford on two successive days, so drunk he could hardly speak. I told him he was through, finally and forever. My secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone, it was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected a plea for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying that you were the best boss he had ever had and that you were not to blame in any way. Another time, as I opened a letter which lay on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he had placed his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun. The barrel was in his mouth. I had discharged him for drinking six weeks before. Still another experience. A woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force. Four days before, he had hanged himself in his woodshed. I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I have ever known. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony! I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars, for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by better understanding all around. So here we are, the ever-widening circle of of those that are affected by our, our disease, by our compulsive overeating. First, the spouse, then the family, and now the employers. It's like the big book teaches us that we're like a tornado roaring through the lives of others. So look out. Anyone who's in my path, including those that I work for, are going to you know, join the maelstrom. So at this point, probably I should be sharing about how my disease affected my performance at work and affected my relationship with coworkers and so on. But the truth was is that, is that I didn't work for so many years, even though I would have liked to. Because everything was always hard for me. Living was hard. Uh, first of all, I was lugging around a huge body, so I never seemed to have enough energy. And somehow I didn't see enough enough time to do to do what I needed to do, although today I, I'm able to do two, three, four times as much. And I would tell people that the reason I didn't work was because I felt my place was at home. And that, there was some truth in that, but the, but the real truth was that I, I wanted to go out there to work. And, and I had a lot of hands-on help at home, and I had quite a supportive family, So, and I could have pursued something. You know, I was great at temporary jobs because I was a real people pleaser, and I could put on a very good performance, you know, um, in a small frame time frame. But, but today, as a, I'm, as a recovered employee, I see that when I was fueled by self-will, I simply didn't have what it takes to be productive and to grow in an environment with all kinds of people, with deadlines, with pressure, as a recovered person today, I understand from experience 
what I couldn't have understood then when I was in the food and unable to work, that it's that, and that is that when I'm blocked from my higher power, I'm not useful to him, my fellows, or anyone else, especially at work. It's sort of like a cell phone. I brought a cell phone with me when I traveled to the mountains, and it was a great phone. But the indicator kept showing me that I didn't have conti- continuous access to service. So I never knew if I could make a call or not, or if I could receive a text or send one. And that's and that's how I was. I may have had many opportunities and abilities, but I was blocked from my power source. I was blocked from the sunlight of the spirit, and so I was only able to occasionally produce bursts of productivity instead of that consistent, reliable service to others. Um, uh, the only thing I knew how to do was to do everything the right way, which meant my way, right? And I wasn't able to live harmoniously with others. But this is something that's changed for me today. So, of course, I was blessed to be able to start working when I came into the room of recovery about seven years ago. Um, I'm still at the same job, and I make mistakes every day, but I see how living unblocked from the sunlight of the Spirit has allowed me to live harmoniously with others to to contribute to my place of work in a, in a meaningful way. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther C. Would anyone like to share on these paragraphs? This is Janice. Larry. And then Larry. Okay. Again, good morning. Pardon me. Good morning, uh, Rebecca and everyone. My name is Janice M., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, This uh, chapter is to employers, and um, what I got from it was this is a guideline. You know, this whole chapter is a guideline for employers how they can uh, deal with um, alcoholic employees. Um, <clears throat> um, I was an employer, and I was an employee. Um, as an employer, it's telling us um, mostly that, uh, you know, just like frothy emotional fear, warnings from the employer don't matter. We know that. We know that warnings don't work. We're beyond human aid, so it doesn't matter who you are. Um, but in this case, um, he's given us three examples of employees that he had. And he's really talking to other employers. Um, and he's telling us, you know, this is what happened, this is what happened. But the real problem here is that as an employer, um, there was frustration on his part. Why? Because, you know, he lacked the experience of knowing about alcoholism. And he also lacked the understanding of what alcoholism is. You know, he was ignorant. Ignorance is just not knowing, not understanding. So he's going to be giving us us, us experience and understanding, and we're going to see what these where where he goes from here. As as my own experience, I was an employer. I was an abstinent employer. I wasn't I wasn't recovered. And, of course, things went pretty good when I was absent. They weren't that great, but they were good. But as an employee, um, it just so happened that the employer was my dad, so he, wasn't, he was enabling me. So that didn't work out good at all uh, until, you know, I got recovered. And, of course, that's during retirement, so I didn't have the experience. But it's about, all about understanding understanding and experience and we can see what's going to happen here so this is like a uh the employer talking to other employers that this might happen to you and with that i pass thanks thank you janice larry 
Good morning. Uh, Larry Recovered, Compulsive Reader from Chicago. Thanks for your service. Um, so this, yeah, this chapter to employers, um, you know, what we learn in these paragraphs is that, you know, the employer is, is just as mystified as the rest of us, you know, were regarding the, the true affliction of the alcoholic mind. And so, again, you know, here we have three men who were, were utterly powerless, you know, in the clutches um, of this disease. And, you know, what I presume is that, you know, like me, they would have stopped if they could. You know, obviously, they, they were powerless. They didn't know it, but they were powerless to stop. Um, they, I'm sure they tried, you know. Um, so, you know, yeah, just, just like their employers, they, they simply, again, didn't understand what we know today, you know, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as, as his mind. And, you know, perhaps if, if, if they had understood the twofold nature of this disease, you know, that we have this allergy of the body, and we had this obsession in the mind, and, and they had an understanding that there was a way out of this mess. See, I know that today, by the grace of this, of God and this program, I know there's a way out. You know, um, if they knew that, maybe, the, you know, the ending to their tragic story, these, these men that killed themselves may have been different. And what I, what I find interesting in this is, is how we compulsive overeaters can delude ourselves, <laughs> I know I could, in, in thinking that other addictions, you know, particularly alcohol and, and drugs, can kill while, while our addiction is perhaps a, a bit less dangerous. And, you know, when, when my best friend's sister um, tried to manage her food addiction first with excessive exercise, I, I can relate to that. You know, nobody thought it strange. You know, at work, nobody thought it strange when I was exercising a lot. You know, when that failed and she tried purging, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that her employer never knew. Her family didn't know. You know, and that worked for a time, it seemed. And, you know, part of her story is, that is the pounds of physical and emotional weight became unbearable. You know, she decided a few years later uh, to have gastric bypass surgery. And, and, and her employer, you know, was supportive of her temporary absence from work. You know, of course. I mean, I mean you know, nobody, nobody really knew what health issues she was having. You know, and she, she didn't mind that people speculated that she was being treated for cancer. You know, that there was less shame in that. And if she comes back thinner, well, that's, you know, that's part of the treatment, you know, weeks later. You know, and she did. She had the gastric surgery and she lost some weight. But her brain hadn't changed. You know, the gastric surgery, it removed some of her stomach and whatever it does, and, but it didn't remove the obsession of the mind. You know, a few weeks later, you know, I know that, that you know, she returned to work, um, you know, and, and not long after that, uh, the weight returned as well, you know, and, and, and she was still in the clutches of this disease. And like me, you know, working, and, and the employer didn't understand. She didn't understand, you know. And, and when she died two years after that, you know, the doctors said it was natural causes. Yet when my friend, you know, went down um, to, to see her, uh, uh, you know, to see the body, and, and he went to her home and, and, and you know, to see all the food all around, all the binge foods all around, still out. And then in her car, the, the, the bakery box. You know, the, the employer didn't see that. 
you know, you and I know about this, uh, the craziness of this disease and that it does kill. So these chapters are, are, are really good for the understanding of the employer and uh, for me as well. Thank God for this for this program. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. Would anyone else like to share on this portion of the chapter? Well, this is Rebecca, and I'll take a chance to just chime in and... Um, Frankly, what's going through my mind right now, I'm Rebecca. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and grateful to be here, um, is that we're talking about such a serious issue of suicide and just how dire this uh, disease can be of addiction. And um, that I had a personal um, brush with someone who was feeling suicidal uh, just this weekend and um, is in her disease and um, my heart goes out to anyone who thinks that there's no other solution but that and um, I've known many people in this program who were terribly terribly depressed when they were uh, active in their illness and found experience, strength, and hope in others who have recovered um, from this fatal illness and are walking free today. And we hear about it in this book um, amongst the first 100. And it's just been growing and growing and growing since then. So um, I just want to convey that I believe anyway that there's hope for all of us. If I could do it, I'd like to believe anyone could do it because I was clueless and somehow was given uh, enough open-mindedness to try this program and it worked for me. And I believe if it worked for me, it could work for you too. And um, that if we are that far down in the quicksand that we're thinking it's not worth hanging around long enough to have the miracle happen, um, please um, go for help and um, keep the hope. And with that, I will pass. Would anyone else like to share on these paragraphs before we move on? Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. Hello, this is Raquel. I heard someone before Kathy. Do? It was do? Yes. Okay, do, Kathy, and Raquel. And Sue G, I spoke up first. I thought it I was Kathy. <laughs> okay, we'll do it that way. Do, Kathy, Raquel, Sue G. Go ahead, do. Good morning. This is Stu, Recover Compulsive Overeater. You know, what I see here is that, um, you know, it says, here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. And, you know, and that's that's the key right there. If you're not a compulsive overeater or an alcoholic, you're not going to understand this disease. It's not until you're in the clutches and... and um, 
and in the throes of this disease that you really understand it. You have the experience and hope with that. Um, and it says it wasn't until for the intervention of an understanding person. And who's that understanding person? Someone that's just like us. Someone that's gone through what we've gone through. Someone that has the same experience as we do. Someone that has gone through the throes of, of compulsive overeating and alcoholism. Someone that really understands the disease, what it is to be depressed, what it is to lose everything, what it is to not have your life manageable, what it is to, you know, make a wreck of your family, of, of, your, of your finances, of your life. Um, and it says, I might have followed in their footsteps. In other words, the same thing could have happened to him if there wasn't an intervention. And that's why I, I see here it's really important for us to recover, 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 because not only are we saving our own lives, but we have the potential to help other people save their own lives. You know, and, and it's through the experience, strength, and hope that we do that. You know, it's uh, following this program that we've been given as a gift. Um, you know, it says we think that the business fabric is shot through with the situation which might be helped by better understanding all around. And the only way we're going to get that understanding is, again, you know, going through through this together. You know, we have one common one common problem and one common solution. And it's, you know, those that get this, we have the opportunity to pass it forward because if not, it means the lives of other people. And Bill Bill W. and, and Dr. Bob understood that when they went frantically helping other alcoholics in that hospital. They knew that the potential for people to die from this disease was, was great. You know, and so today we have that opportunity. We have the opportunity to help others and, and to recover and to help ourselves. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Bill. Someone's wrestling. Kathy? Thank you, Rebecca, for your service. Hi, this is Kathy Kay, uh, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. And um, I find myself having very strong feelings of gratitude and sadness as we read this chapter. Um, when I first came into program in 1993, I was working full-time at a career that I had always wanted, and um, it was pointed out to me uh, by my husband that uh, even though I was finally doing the work I wanted to do, I seemed very unhappy and stressed all the time. And it took me 10 years in program, really, to uh, identify as it's laid out here in the big book, I thought I must not be as sick as other people because I was holding down a full-time job and and doing pretty well at it. Um, and it was only in doing um, my inventory work that I began to see uh, how distorted my reactions to things at work were and how much I was... Um, really undermining my own effectiveness and my relationships with others at work. And I continued on with that and only really got recovered in the last few years. Um, and uh, I'm also now at retirement age. And so I made a decision 
um, to retire so that I could give more time to my program and to my recovery and to helping others. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, I'm sad that so many years were were plagued by my disease much more so than I realized until I did the work of the 12 steps as they're laid out in the big book. Um, But also very grateful that I can today help others um, recover and continue in my own recovery. With that, I pass. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Raquel? Yes. Hello. Hi. Is this uh, Rebecca? It's Rebecca. Leading? Yes, Rebecca. Yes. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for your service, and and thank you, everybody, really, who is on the line. Oh, you know, if my my employers, you know, we're so far from it yet, I think, with the, with the overeating uh, that employers should be able to notice Nobody noticed that I was haunting the halls of that school. My ability to work in like in, in the year 89, 87, 89, um, 88, 88, 89, was in one of the leading schools in, in, in the Boston area, uh, Jewish schools. Uh, my capacity to work because of the food was such that I needed twice as much time to get organized after the students left, and I would stay at school sometimes till midnight to get my work done. And what did I eat? Bad sandwiches from the lockers from God knows when the children left. And I had to work so hard. It was like pulling my feet out of molasses to trudge that way, to be able to get my work and my mind organized and check the papers. It kept on, just like I needed more food to get stoned, to have a brownout. It's not even a blackout, darn it. But I needed more food and I needed more time to keep the facade that I, that I am employable. Nobody knew. The Xerox machine was at my disposal. I could run off papers. I could, you know, I should have probably brought with me a sleeping bag. My son would go home alone. I just took so much to just keep the facade, keep the job. In one school, I was lucky enough that there was a secretary who, who we both really got very fond of each other, and she told me about OA. First, she told me about about some kind of powder, I think it was the the some some kind of Cambridge diet or whatever, and we both went on that powder and mixed it in water and drank it until we almost threw up on each other, and then when we couldn't anymore, she said to me, you know, there is something else that is good, but I don't have the time to do it. Maybe now that you only have one child at home and he's in high school, maybe you can do it. And she introduced me to um, to OA. This was like so many years ago, and I know because I'm in contact with her once in a while that she already had the knee operations. 
She had every, the, the, the blood pressure, heart, everything. I don't know why God was so kind to me to take, like, pick me up with, with scissors out of this misery and show me the program. And even though I didn't understand, like I understand it now through vision and what was before vision, but I was at least supported by, this, by these groups and by the fellowship until the happy day came that I finally understood that it's all about recovery and not just uh, abstinence, you know. And I, I don't want to take your time, but I, I, speaking of employers, maybe the day will come when people around us will understand that it's just as fatal and as, as life-threatening as any of the other diseases, and, and help will come from employers and from the health community. In Israel, it's very far yet from becoming that way. But um, with God's help, it will happen. I'm so grateful to all of you online, and thank you so much, and I pass. Thank you, Rachel. Suji? Suji? I am now unmuted. It's Suji. I hope I'm unmuted. Am I? You, you are Suji. Okay. And which page are we on now? Is it uh, the first two of two employers or after Correct. That? Correct. The first two. First two. Up to okay. understanding all around. Okay. So here I am. Here, three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony. I became an alcoholic myself. And but for the intervention of an understanding person, one of us or one of humanity, somebody who understood, I might have followed in their footsteps. Well, I can relate to this because, as I've said before, I am a low-bottom codependent and a very high-bottom addict. So I walked into OA and I've made my decision. I'm, I'm not eating anymore in a bad way and I'm going to work the 12 steps in this fellowship. I was very fortunate. But it took me ages to get there because it takes ages to get to the high bottom. And the high bottom makes me think of this suicide stuff that I've never consciously thought about, oh, I'll kill myself. I've been fortunate. I've never done that. I've helped people who have done that by being the help provider who says, gee, you came to me. That's not what a suicidal person does. If you really mean it, you'll go jump off the George Washington Bridge, so let's form a relationship and let's move on with it. That, that part is easy. The part of the people out there who are going on that bridge, that's the stuff that's really hard. And when we hear some of our low-bottom addicts telling their stories on Sunday morning about getting on a bridge over the Hudson and being ready to jump, well, that, that's not good. But neither was my slow suicide. That could kill me, too. And my slow suicide was, was to that place of hole in the roof. My daughter thought the roof was going to fall in and kill me and my husband. And then I said, wake up, woman, get help. And, and I got help for what was, what was going on at the surface level. The surface level was the food. The deep level was what led me to say, do I want to live or do I want to die? Which direction am I going in? God's direction or mine? And I decided to go in the higher powers direction, such as who be is to me. And, and that's good. Now, I think of um, 
advice, advice to the loved one. So my, I'm going away for a week. It costs a few days. My husband is a doctor. He goes and takes care of old people. He was going to the dentist this morning. And so I think of how, how my message to him might have been in the past. It was the same as my mother, the codependent's message to me was. She, she stayed with us for a year, and she made me furious because I try to collect myself emotionally to go to work, and she'd say, go off and heal the sick. And I wanted to punch her out because I knew how to, how to analyze disease, but I didn't know how to heal the sick. I wasn't God, and I'd be really ticked off when she would do that. So I said to my husband in jest, I'm not going to tell you to go heal the sick. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you Pray for your dentist and pray for your patients. And he said, that's what they need. Thank you. <laughs> and we said goodbye and we kissed goodbye. And isn't that romantic? But I'm leaving without the feeling that, oh, my God, what else did I want to say to my husband in case I get killed on the road or something? You know, I'm not planning to get killed on the road. I'll get my tires checked before I go. But that's the best I can do. And that's enough. That's enough for me, the human being. I, I am not God, and I think that's what all of this tells you. And these people who are helping the other people, bless them and change us. Bless the employers. The employers are, are now giving people employee assistance, and my family is getting therapy for free through employee assistance. Imagine that. Wow. That's that's change in a wonderful direction. The world is recovering slowly but surely, and thank you for letting me share. I pass. Thank you, Sue G. Amy G., please continue the reading with the next four paragraphs, beginning at the bottom of 137 with nearly every modern, through the top of page 139, ending with nothing to do but wait. I got it, Rebecca. Thank you so much for your service. Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy. I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his help as he tries to meet these responsibilities. That he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. To him, the alcoholic has often seemed a fool of the first magnitude. Because of this employee's special ability or of his own strong personal attachment to him, the employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond a reasonable period. Some employers have tried every known remedy. In only a few instances has there been a lack of patience and tolerance, and we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. Here, for instance, is a typical example of an of an officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America, knows that I no longer drink. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful, so I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. His comment was, very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three-month leave of absence, has taken a cure, looks fine, and to clinch the matter, the board of directors told him this was his last chance. The only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bust than ever. 
I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was going was doing the man an injustice. Why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. I pointed out that I had had nothing to drink whatever for three years and that in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of ten men drink their heads off. Why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? Oh, no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he is minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement, for I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from a serious illness. There was nothing to do but wait. Well, again, this is chapter two, the employers, and as others have said, you know, we can educate as best we can, but that's really the only thing that we can do because for many of the employers, obviously, who are not compulsive overreaders are not going to understand. Now, in this day and age with alcoholism, alcoholism has made great strides. In most cases, if you were to try to explain to someone about alcoholism, they will have heard of it. They will have understood there's measures that you can take to, to help the employee and all these things. But with compulsive overeating, in my humble opinion, we haven't made it that far. And it's still an issue for many who don't, who are not, you know, who regular folk, you know, who are not a compulsive overeaters are not going to understand that this is not just an issue of willpower. You know, it says here, if he has your, your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. Well, it didn't matter how hard I tried. Because of the mental obsession and the physical allergy, I was doomed. Of myself alone, I could not heal myself of my compulsive overeating. And, you know, when it comes to the employer, sometimes, you know, do with saying, you know, get recovered, get recovered. Because when we're in a situation at a workplace or a work environment, we may be the only big book as recovered compulsive overeaters that people are going to see. And we can carry it such a powerful message to an employer who is struggling with, say, another compulsive overeater. We can see the signs. We can be of service, and we can carry that message. But what I like about what this guy, what is being said here is that we can only carry the message. At one point, he had to throw up his hands, and he had to wait. He had to to wait for what? Well, for this disease to do what the disease is going to do which is going to take us down, took me down, and it's going to take us down every time. And it doesn't matter how hard we try or if we take a three-month leave of absence or whatever, if we are truly a compulsive overeater like I was, and as it is described in this book, then we're going to go on a bigger bust or, for us, a bigger binge than ever. And pretty soon, and hopefully, the employee will at least have a seed planted If the disease of compulsive overeating has been described to the employer, at least a seed is planted where hopefully instead of either enabling this person or firing them off right, other action can be taken. But, I mean, this lack of patience and tolerance and we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. You know, as a compulsive overeater, I can do just as much damage as an active compulsive overeater. I did so much damage to my employees. I stole, I lied, I cheated. I didn't work the hours I should have worked. I didn't give what I should have to my employers. The damage that we can do can be just as severe, just as others have said. This is a serious illness on all fronts. It wreaks havoc, in, wreaks havoc 
or let me put it this way, I wreaked havoc to every area of my life, and that included where I worked. And by the grace of God and this program, I can not only carry a message, but I can do my due diligence as the proper employee that I should be when I work. And that is by the grace of God in this program. And with that, I think I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Amy D. Who would like to share on these paragraphs? This would be Paula D. Leah. Hannah. I heard heard Paula, Leah, Hannah, Hannah. I believe. And then. Do? Okay. Paula, go right ahead. And thank you. And thank you for your service. This would be Paula D. You know, I want to read two things here. And one says, because of the employee's special ability or his own strong personal attachment to him, the employer had sometimes kept such a man working at work long before a reasonable period. He liked the guy, and the guy was a good worker. I mean, this is it, personal attachment. You know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's when you meet me and where you meet me. And then he goes on, and I just love that. That's what kept him on. You know, then he goes on and he says here, and I love this, and, and, and you know, oh, no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he's minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he'll make the grade with all of it. He wanted the guy to make good. He didn't understand. You know, it, it, when the Washingtonians had an audience with Abraham Lincoln, what he said was, I do not understand this kind of thirst. How many do not understand this kind of hunger? So when I look here again, and I love the ending, there was nothing to do but wait. But in the waiting, things are happening. I always used to think when people said, well, now just pause. What? And do nothing? And do nothing? There was so much in that pause. So with that, I say thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Paula. Leah? Thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, Nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his help, and he tries to meet these responsibilities. Um. You know, this part of the book always reminds me of of a bit of my history. Um, well, first of all, you know, this two employers is an effort to um, enlighten the employers about the pervasiveness of, of alcoholism in the workplace, et cetera, and the cost of that. And uh, it always make, reminds me, you know, of Mr. John Shalpak. It was Mr. John Shalpak who called me into his office. I was about 20 years of age. And, uh, you know, I had long been in the throes of this disease of compulsive overeating. And at the time, I was specializing in food restriction and over-exercise as a way to beat this game of compulsive overeating. And um, I was about 85 pounds at the time and losing my hair. And uh, he called me into the office because I had this queer habit of passing out on the workplace floor. And, um, you know, I had been confronted by coworkers. And here was uh, my boss's opportunity to sit me down and say, you know, can I be of help to you? Because, you know, not only is this disease cunning, baffling, and powerful to those of us that have it, 
it is cunning, baffling, and powerful to those of us, you know, who care about us. It goes on to say, because of the employer's special ability or his own strong personal attachment to him, the employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long before beyond a reasonable period. And certainly that was the case here, um, because, you know, I was passing out, and that would cause quite a commotion uh, in the workplace. And, you know, how puzzling it was to Mr. John Shalpak, because here I was, you know, an Ivy League student. But, you know, the big book says, however intelligent we may be, where alcohol is concerned, we are strangely insane. I mean, why? I certainly wasn't the brightest bulb in the chandelier. But why with somebody who possesses perhaps some special abilities and and possibly some special skills and aptitudes and maybe has promising career ahead of them, why would they do something like this? <laughs> why would they bounce around a disease, uh, you know, um, in in this way? Why was someone who had ambition, drive, motivation, and, and a little bit of intelligence bowed to the demands of the disease? And this uh, history of mine carried through, you know, you know, throughout my work history. Uh, you know, I had food stains over all my work relationships and work histories uh, for the next few years. It was a few more years before uh, this book was cracked open to me. So anyway, um, you know, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, to think that compulsive overeating only affects ourselves is uh, putting your head in the sand. Um, you know, this does affect other people. And, I, and I'm grateful to report that years later, my higher power had it be that in another location, I ran in, states away, ran into John Shalpak and was able to, to uh, describe to him my recovery process and, and, and uh, offer thanks to him for caring so, so much at that time. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Hannah? Good, good morning. This is Hannah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Colorado. Um, thank you for thank you for the meeting, as always. I'm I'm still on um, on the suicide because it was just I just I just passed the 10th anniversary of the suicide of a friend who had this program, who had had it for several years. And I, I think there is, with all the understanding in the world, there is still a mystery that something that happens very deep down inside us about choosing to live or die. Uh, and I think that's something that we have to understand that, yes, I'm responsible for carrying the message, and I can't make someone hear it. Um, I had, this is separately, um, uh, it was close to the end of my bottom with food, and my boss said to me one day, she just, she, you know, she let me know that people were noticing that I was taking food that wasn't mine. <laughs> Not only wasn't it mine, it was set out for the big boss. 
and his meetings. Um, and and I just I could not see that I was behaving compulsively. I, I just couldn't see it. And she didn't say, she basically just said, my boss basically just said to me, stop doing it. Um, and, I, you know, that was, that was about 20 years ago, and I don't remember if I did stop doing it right then or not. I know I got to OA very shortly after that, and I stopped doing it, but it wasn't an act of will. You know, it wasn't an act of reason of thinking, well, you know, I'm getting in trouble at work. I really should stop doing this. Um, it was just the surrender to the program, to my need for a higher power, to my acceptance of my powerlessness over food. And I think that that's, I, I just find that, Understanding doesn't necessarily mean salvation. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, thank you. Thanks for the meeting. I pass. Thank you, Hana. Do? Good morning. Is it my turn? It's your turn, Do. Uh, good morning, Ms. Do Recover Compulsive Overeater. Thank you for your service, Rebecca. Um, yeah, it sits here. I had failed to help my banker friend understand. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from an illness, a serious illness. It was nothing to do but wait. And what that reminds me, of, and I want to bring it back to OA, you know, um, the fact that even the medical society doesn't understand our condition, let alone an employer. <laughs> you know, it's taken about 50 years, 50 years since the, the existence of OA for them to finally, in, to, in May 2013, to put us in the new DSM-5 as eating disorder and recognize us as an illness for binge eating disorder. 50 years. Why? Because with the medical society, they had to go over and over and over and over with these patients over and over and over, trying to understand, you know, why they couldn't go to the um, the uh, nutritionist and get a food plan and and just, you know, eat moderately. You know, they just couldn't understand that. And they couldn't understand that we had an illness and that, you know, we're just like the alcoholic. Once we start, we can't stop. And once we're stopped, we can't stop. Uh, stay stopped, you know, and and that's that's the illness, you know. We we have something in us that causes us to be different from a normal eater, from a normal drinker, you know. And you know, there was nothing but to do but wait. I mean, we've had to wait 50 years <laughs> for us to be recognized as an illness, you know. Um, let alone in, in the workplace. I think about the workplace. I used to work in the workplace, and, and I, I remember my employers being annoyed at fat people, being annoyed because every single time, one, one, um, I think it was two employers that we had that would come in, and they were so heavy, they would break the chairs all the time. 
so they had to keep replacing the chairs. And after a while, they were looking to see how to fire this person because they were like thinking, you know, it's, cost, it's, a, it's costing us more to have this person in the workplace than, than it is to, to have someone else come in. You know, and that's a form of prejudice, but, you know, they did not understand. They did not understand that this person had an illness and that something could have been done about it. Um, and that's why we bring it back to program, you know, because, you know, program is going to help us to, to address this illness. And at least in the program, we need to bring back the big book, you know, and I see that a lot. I see the, the effectiveness of this program, you know, of what's in these pages to help the alcoholic, to help the compulsive old reader, to help us to understand and help others. You know, and sometimes it takes time, you know, because if you're not a compulsive overeater or alcoholic, you're not going to understand. You may just think it's just a matter of moderation. You may think it's a matter of willpower. You may think it's a matter of you doing it yourself. And that's not the case. We're sick people. We're sick people. We have an illness. Uh, we can't help it a lot of the times, you know. Um, that's why we, we need this um, program to help us to see that there's another way out for us. And, you know, and, and, and does that mean that we give up trying to spread this message yet to others, you know, and trying to uh, help them understand that, that these are sick people? No, we don't stop doing that. But, you know, but the thing is, if you're non, a non-compulsive overeater, if you're a non-alcoholic, you need to see it for yourself. And, and a lot of times it's through the destructiveness of others, unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's how they learn. That's how they see it themselves. And um, it's not until they get that understanding that they're able to implement certain things to, to allow the compulsive ovary alcoholic to, to get this. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Du. Thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. Will Devorah S. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Hi. Good morning, everybody. This is Devorah from New Jersey. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fast for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.